take thou authority to preach the gospel. Indeed, I look upon all the world as my parish. Hello and welcome to our latest episode of Field Preachers. This is Rachel Gilmore. I'm on staff here at Path One at Discipleship Ministries, excited to share with you the story of Sarah Ewing Merrill. Sarah and her husband, Alan, uh, planted Hope Gateway Church in Portland, Maine, not Oregon, my friends, Portland, Maine, um, 12 years ago. So when I reached out across the connection of Methodism to figure out Who's been in the trenches the longest? Who are the grandmas and grandpas of church planting? Sarah, my friends, is the most senior grandma of them all, although we are about the same age. So she's young, she's fun, she's doing incredible things, and still has a heart for planting 12 years later. I hope you learn as much from her as I did in her story of Field Preachers. So I am Sarah Ewing Merrill. Um, I am from South Dakota, but I've lived in New England for nearly 20 years, and um, I used to think it was the place with the like little states in the corner of the map that didn't really make any sense because they didn't have a shape that you could like put in a category, but I am very at home in New England, um, in large part because it's post-religious, um, and people um, don't assume when you move to a new place, they don't say, where do you go to church? Um, like... <laughs> If you said that, it would be, like, offensive. Um, so it's just a really um, different context than what I grew up in and what I um, assumed I would be living in. Um, my husband and I um, are both ordained elders and served. Um, I served. I asked to be appointed near to him when we were dating um, and... I said, please don't appoint me three hours away. And so they appointed me two hours away. And, um, but near Portland, where we are now, and my husband's from Maine, but we were in Massachusetts. And then I went back to Massachusetts after we got married, served as an associate pastor. And we had a child, and we decided that we didn't want mommy's church and daddy's church, because that was really hard for us and our way of being. So we said we'd really like to go to Portland, Maine and plant a church, which is not um, really what we do in our system in the United Methodist Church. Um, so the cabinet didn't say, oh, yeah, <laughs> let's do that. They said, mm, we'll think about that. Uh, no, you're not going to do that. Um, yeah, maybe we could do that. Oh, let's talk about that. And so eventually... Um, late in the appointment season, um, they said, you can go and pastor um, the church that sold their building 18 months ago and do hospice ministry with them, and you can plant a new church, and we'll pay you one salary, um, but we'll give you housing. So we said, great! <laughs> We'd love to do that. Um, so we did that. Um, Twelve years ago, and um, worshiped in a synagogue on Sunday morning mm -hmm. with a um, menorah being covered over by a um, tri-fold like, science fair project thing, um, listened to, um, had the hymnal on CD, um, 
on the big case. So you like have to pick out the right CD and pick out the right number. The lady who was doing it was not really great at that. And then she blamed her husband because, John, that's not the right number. Um, so let's just say we felt like we were playing church. My husband and I had been um, in like congregations with 200 people on Sunday morning. And then we went to this terrible, dirty place on Sunday mornings with the music on CD, and we like came wearing our robes with our stoles. We like had these pictures of our first few Sundays, and we're like, this felt like we were playing church and like doing this thing that we were supposed to be doing in this context where it didn't fit at all. Um, so we were serving that church on Sunday mornings and then starting a new church, um, which, as you all know, like, what does that even mean? <laughs> like, how do you even do that? Um, and how do you tell other people what you're doing and invite them to be a part of it when you don't really know exactly what you're doing? So um, I had a one-year-old, so my in was with moms. So I joined all the playgroups and um, tried to build on those relationships and... Then when we like ha finally had a vision and we were going to have a small group um, in the basement of a restaurant that was like a low barrier place and um, we had like cards printed up for the event. So I was at this play group and it was at somebody's house because we'd like gotten far enough into relationship where we were like gathering in a home. And then at the end of that gathering, I like handed out these things and I felt so gross <laughs> because it was like, admitting to everybody that I was in relationship with them, not because I wanted to be in relationship with them as a person, but that I really wanted them for the thing that I was doing. And um, maybe because I was really uncomfortable with it, I felt like they, they were uncomfortable, I was uncomfortable, and I was like, okay, not like <laughs> this, this, I can't do this. Like somebody else can do that, and like it can be natural and good and fine, but for me, it just felt really wrong. Um, so those people, one of those people had been at that, um, at our synagogue worshiping church for a while, but nobody else in that group has ever been involved in anything that we've done at church. Um, they're, I'm still, they're still in my world. Like we have kids growing up in the same city, um, but they're not, they're not my people. And some of them go, I mean, one of them goes to church in our, like Episcopal Church, sister church across the street now, and that's great. Um, so we started a house church, we multiplied the house church, we had other people um, hosting in their homes, but mostly we were doing all of it because um, that's what you do, because people don't know how to do church and you carry all the load. So we did lots of things way before we should have done them, started an evening worship that was just a terrible idea, and then I resented all the people who'd be like, oh, we're going out to dinner. And I'd be like, I'm here with my one-year-old who needs to go to sleep, cleaning up. And like, you don't see, like nobody else sees that there's like things left to be done. Um, so we did, we've done a house church. We've done what we thought was hospice. We've moved in, we moved that community and then the other community into a new neighborhood for a missional site. Um, started serving community meals is one of our first things we did there. Um, started, um, one of the things that we really learned um, 
the best training I got as a church planter um, was actually urban ministry training in England. And John Vincent um, said, your mission will kiss you. Like, what you're going to become is going to be who's going to come through your doors or through somewhere in your life, and you're going to know, like, you're going to be open to it because that's what Jesus is bringing to you. And um, so we had people in the synagogue come to us um, struggling with alcoholism and waited three years for somebody to come who was ready to, who was in active recovery and was like, we should have a, <laughs> we should do all these things. Um, and so we became um, a 12-step, we have 12-step groups meet every day in our place. And the people who come to those meetings think of us as their church. Like they say, Hope Gateway is my church. Like they've never come to worship on Sunday morning. They have no expectation that they're ever going to, but we are their community. And there's people who've moved away from that, who I'm still connected with, uh, who are, um, you know, who floated in and out of my life in that world, and they, but we are their community. Um, we also um, had an asylum seeker from Burundi who came um, through our doors, and we had a retreat um, coming up the next week, and we invited him on that, and then he brought friends, and so um, our community is probably one-third asylum seekers from Central Africa, and um, that is really beautiful and wonderful and also really challenging because people have really deep wounds um, and trauma that they're recovering from, um, you know, in the moment. And that's a lot for our community to carry, but it's really real, and it's um, also a gift. Um, so we've been a house church, we've been a mission site, we had a Sunday evening worship, we had a Sunday morning worship, we eventually merged those into one and stopped doing house churches, then we outgrew a site, so we opened, we functioned out of two places, which we thought was being multi-site, but we never really knew what that meant, or like, we're like, well, we have two sites, so we're multi-site. We have worship in two places, so we're multi-site, but we take down at one and run to the other on a Sunday morning, the same people, and um, so then we got rid of, so we really say like we've served 12 churches in 12 years. Um, and so, um, last year we stopped, um, having anything in the space, our original space, and, um, rented it to somebody else so that that $20,000 deficit, um, in our budget became a $20,000 asset in our budget. So we are now, we are no longer <laughs> multi-site in any way, shape, or form. And we have worship and um, 12-step groups and um, Tai Chi and um, have had yoga over the years in our space for, um, in one space. So um, we've always had a tension with being full-time clergy with benefits. Um, and what we believe the church should be. Um, 
So, and having more people in leadership. And we've been trying in various ways over the past years to pull more people into worship, worship leadership. Um, and my husband um, got another job um, this July and started July 1. And so is no longer employed um, by Hope Gateway. And I am now not the co-pastor anymore, but the lead pastor. And we hired five coordinators um, of our community to do the things that um, we really believe in and are really important to who we are. So, um, and those people are um, primarily queer people and people of color, um, or in part one or the other. We only have one white um, cisgender straight man. Um, and it's actually my former DS who appointed <laughs> us, um, strangely enough. But that feels really good. Um, people really were worried about me in July and be like, how, how are you? Like, how's this going? Like, it must be really hard that like, basically like Alan's abandoned you <laughs> to like to carry this thing. And I'm like, no, this is really great. Like, I'm preaching less than I was. I'm doing less in worship than I was. We have, we're planning further ahead than we were. Um, we have a lot more people carrying a lot more things. Um, and it feels more like the church that we've been seeking to be for a really long time. Um, but just, just, just some of the insights about my story that I heard when you all were talking or like how, how long it takes to be a recognized entity in your community. Like, like to have people in, on the city council or in any kind of or other organizations like actually um, know that you're there and you matter is not going to happen in one year or two years or even three years. Like, like you have to be doing something <laughs> for quite a long time for people to um, know that your community is engaged and influential. So um, 12 years is a long time <laughs> to be in one place, but I don't want to, I have no interest in serving any other church of any shape or form in the future. Like I'd rather do any, actually I have another job now. Um, that I could definitely move into um, instead of serving another church. So, because um, I don't want to, I don't want to go back to doing church um, as the main thing and following Jesus on the side. Like, my community knows that we are following Jesus, even if they're not really sure that Jesus is divine or what that means. Like, we want to be like Jesus and. I feel like that's too rare of a thing in our churches. There are, a lot, there are a lot of asylum seekers in our community, and we're connected. I'm connected with them in my other work, and um, we have our church launched a nonprofit that has a residential house for asylum seekers um, and then has let that go. But the people who come um, to worship at Hope Gateway, we're more, we used to be less. Um, explicit that we were like we we didn't say 
um, LGBTQ in every worship gathering. We didn't out people like these people with the child are married. <laughs> like we didn't. Um, so I felt like, and people with language barriers could sometimes could come and not know. Like three years ago, like could somehow be oblivious kind of to who we were. Um, but we now have a welcome statement that says like, whatever country from, you're welcome. Whatever um, your gender identity and sexual orientation, you're welcome here. Um, so we're much more explicit about it. I think the people who um, come and stay actually are people who are interested and willing to adapt their cultural frames to see things larger than they have. And um, it really, it's a, it's a huge thing because um, another friend who doesn't go to our church said like when African men who come with their family come, at, it's an emasculating experience because the family in his, and I, it's not universally true, but I think it's more true than not. Like, the family is a hierarchy in their, um, so I, I'm a, people from Angola, DRC, Burundi, and Rwanda are the main population of people that we um, are connected with. But they, um, to be, to have your wife to be able to influence decisions on your family, to be, not able to provide for your family because you're not able to work. You're not like all of your authority as a man um, is pretty much like taken away from you. You can't hit your kids, <laughs> like lots, lots and lots of things. And so the people that come to Hope Gateway are and stay um, are somehow doing okay in that really drastic transition. Um, about what gender means and sexuality means. And, um, and they're probably not doing as good as I think they are. <laughs> I mean, or, they're not as far along on their... Um, I mean, we had somebody who's been, like, his first Sunday held the second child of um, the lesbian couple that we married six years ago and, like, was the first person who we met when he came, we came to the new church plant like um and then like three years later he says oh they're married <laughs> like and then it's like oh like if they can marry each other then like that changes the frame even more than it just like being in relationship yeah, yeah. um so you know i think i assume many times i assume people think like me much more than they do on every level about lots and lots of issues. Um, but somehow it's, we hold it. And, and relationship trumps, relationship trumps everything. Wow, Sarah shared some amazing things. Um, personally, selfishly, I loved hearing her experience of co-planting with her spouse because my husband's also a pastor, but he had a church while I was planting mine. And, and hearing Sarah share about how she and Alan intentionally planted it together so they could raise their kids in one church is really cool. It's something that my kids didn't experience 
for a decade while there were two churches to choose from on a Sunday morning. So there are definite pros to the approach that she and Alan took, um, but I definitely identified with the struggle that she had when she was having folks in her home and holding worship there, and she's trying to clean up everything and get young kids to bed, and it could just be so overwhelming. So it really is hard if you are out there and you're listening and you're maybe a lay person, you attend the plant, but you're not the planter, please step up and help. We need you to help us clean up, take out the trash, put away the chairs after each and every single event. Um, So along with that, though, I think something that's helped Sarah keep going for 12 years when it has been stressful, she's had young kids in this process, is that she talked about the importance of keeping Jesus as her focus. Sometimes we get so busy serving and building the church that we forget to connect to the one who actually built it before we got there. Um, So her faith and her walk, her self-care plan, her Sabbath um, is so crucial. It's been crucial to her. It's crucial to any of us that are in any type of ministerial setting. Um, And finally, I thought it was really important that she drew attention to the fact that when you're a new church planter, you live in this dual reality, right? This fear that, oh my gosh, what if... um, what if I do really well? And then that means that now the annual conference wants to parade me on stage and celebrate my accomplishments. And now I'm being watched more closely. And sometimes things that start off well don't always um, succeed in the long haul. So, so what do you do when the buzz fades, you know, at the conference level? Or maybe you're still a successful plant, but new people are coming and they're in the limelight. So I thought her honesty about the reality of that situation was an important takeaway for me too. All right. Um, I hope you learned as much as I did. I hope you guys have a wonderful day. Thank you again for joining us on this edition of Field Preachers. Field Preachers podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.